This is Eric Luby, pastor of the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. The ministry of Ellerslie endeavors to once again see triumphant Christianity stride upon the stage of time, to see the church of Jesus Christ built strong to stand immovable in these times of sinking sand. We hope this podcast is an encouragement to your soul. If you would like to stream live or visit us in person or even support us financially, please go to ellerslie.com to learn more. This particular message flows out of a meditation that I had in Mark 13 this past week. And I think I went through Mark 13. It was like one of those things where I was doing it on the audio Bible, you know, where you're just sort of reading through and I was taking a walk and, and I heard it and then I was pondering it. And then I, you know, went back a chapter, kept trying to get to Mark 14 and I kept going back to the start of Mark 13. So I listened to it many times this week and it's not what I would typically like to review. You know, on the human side, there, there are passages of scripture that you really are, you gravitate towards, and there's others that are just like, skip, fast forward, especially with digital you know, Bibles. You can do all sorts of things. It's like, well, you know, my, my oops, I accidentally pushed fast forward. And you can get past uh, certain scriptures that are a little heavier, and this is about the end times and some weightier matters that make us, you know, feel a little uncomfortable. And, uh, and so I, I just, I'll explain to you why I kept going through it, because there was something that kept standing out to me in the process. And so my title doesn't necessarily give that away, but uh, it's called Strong on Paper. Now that, that could be interpreted many ways, uh, but if you were to look at your life on paper, uh, it's like, hey, I'm a believer. And as a believer, I have access to the shed blood of Jesus as my covering. So in other words, I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Whoa, that means I am forgiven. That means I am set free. That means death has no more hold over me. That means that my old man is crucified and I have a new life in Christ. I have a resurrected life. (laughs) Whoa! all on paper. It's facts. But when something just remains on paper, it oftentimes doesn't always translate into real life. There is so much in the Bible on paper that you and I are not living out. And so as a result, what I want us to catch a vision for is not just being strong on paper, because we still want to agree with the word, and that's some good paper right there. Those are some good words on that paper. There's nothing wrong with being strong on paper. What's true about your life? Well, let's, let's see. Oh, I, I am in Christ. I am redeemed. Oh, I am forgiven. This is great. You don't want to nullify that. However, you want that truth to come alive inside of you so that you're not just strong on paper, you're strong in person. In other words, in person being in Christ. You are alive. It's real to you. And so much of discipleship is the transition from head to, and some people say, to heart, which isn't a bad way of saying it, but it's like head to fingertips, toes, where it actually goes into action mode. And when that begins to happen, watch out world. Christianity on paper. This is a meditation. I've reviewed this quote many times over the years. Very fascinating quote. And it's one of those quotes that you wonder why you you didn't have. Because it's Catherine Booth 
who was one of the co-founders, along with William Booth, of the Salvation Army. And the Salvation Army back in the day was very impressive. What, like, in like the first three years, 300,000 people like come into the kingdom of heaven. Now, I don't know if those statistics are like three years. I don't know how many. It was like right in the very beginning, explosion. And souls are being reached. And this is what Catherine Booth said. And it's just such a fascinating meditation. I was thinking while I was reading these passages, speaking of like reading the Bible, what if we could erase from our minds all knowledge of the history of Christianity from the close of the period described in the book of Acts, and then looking, looking at the book of Acts, sit down and try to calculate what was likely to happen in the world. Now imagine you didn't know the last 2,000 years, and you read the book of Acts, and then someone like sets you in this world and says, so what do you think the world is like today? She says, we would most likely expect very different results. A radically changed world is the outcome of it all. A system which started with such power under such promises and declarations on the part of its author and producing as it did in its first century such gigantic and momentous results. We would have thought, if we knew nothing of what has intervened from then until now, that the whole world would have fallen long ago to the influence of that system and would have been brought under the authority of its great originator and founder. I say from reading these acts and from observing the spirit which moved the early disciples that we should have anticipated 10,000 times greater results. And in my opinion, this anticipation would have been perfectly rational and just. I agree. In fact, it's rather disturbing, sort of a disturbing quote. What has happened to us is the first question I want to ask. What? You see, you have been born into a generation of marginalized Christianity. Now, for you, you might look around and go, wow, well, the church is really strong. And I just want to say, compared to the way the church has been in the past, we are very weak. We are not as we ought to be. We've lost something along the way. And the key for us is to not accept that loss, but to go and get back what is lost. But something has been lost. And so this message can be looked at from a couple different directions. One is, why? How could something that grand be lost? And then the other side, well, how do we get it back? Because both are key questions that are important for our souls, because it, not just if the global uh, version of Christianity can lose something, but as individuals, we can gain something and let it slip away. And it's very, very important that we recognize the habit, the discipline, and the art form of caretaking for the individual soul. It's typically in scripture called watchfulness or vigilance. And we also need to recognize that when we are born in a generation of compromise, it is extra challenging to see clearly to regain that which has been lost. Because everyone around you just pats you on the shoulder and says, you're fine. Why are you always saying you want more? So Ellerslie is like a gathering place of a whole bunch of people that feel a little strange where they're, they're at, you know, and everyone's like, everything's fine. They're always patting you. It's like, what's your issue? And we are a whole bunch of strange people that gather together just like, okay, I know I'm strange, but could I gather around some other strange people for once? I just want to feel like everyone around me is all saying, yeah, do you see this? This isn't the way it's supposed to be. We're supposed to be so much more. And I want to just start out by validating that. We are supposed to be so much more. 
And God desires us to be so much more. And he is perfectly capable of reinvigorating that in us as the body of Christ. So the breakdown. How did it happen? Well, this isn't a a quote from Scripture, this next one. This is uh, a guy named Edmund Burke. And he says, The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is that good men do nothing. It is a fascinating phenomenon that in our Christianity, we could have the truth. We could be the good men, right, in that quote. We could be the good men. It's like, oh, it's good to know that there are people that believe the word of God, that trust Jesus. We could be the good men. And then when the enemy encroaches, when the enemy makes his move, when the enemy makes his temptation, we do nothing to resist. We do nothing to stand against that. You see, this is a battle we have engaged in. And when the enemy moves, there is a counter. There is a response that is necessary within individual souls and within a corporate body to say no. And when that no is not there, the enemy accomplishes something that he ought not to. So Winston Churchill, the reason this is very fresh inside of me, I I gave a a series back in 2020 in our Daily Thunder podcast called Spiritual Lessons from World War II. Uh, If you haven't gotten all 93 episodes, then I'm very disappointed in you. It was a, it's, it's a massive war, but it's also a massive series. Very fun, but I had a lot of extra time on my hands in 2020. So, uh, but it is very, very inspiring. And one of the uh, famous quotes from that series was I was always quoting uh, Winston Churchill because I was going through Winston Churchill's memoirs. He was prime minister of Great Britain during World War II. Can you get a better source uh, for understanding World War II? And so I kept quoting Winston Churchill and I kept reminding everyone that my middle name is Winston. Uh, So I might as well just start uh, with that right now. Uh, And Winston Churchill, though I don't want to end up looking like him (laughs) or smoking a cigar and drinking a lot of brandy, he's a very, very fascinating character. And if I can take certain attributes of him and apply him to the spiritual life, it's very inspiring. (laughs) But he's a hard character to know what to do with because it's not like, oh yeah, he's my role model. Well, not really, but when it comes to dog dogmatism in the soul against an enemy. This guy's got something. It's like, no, you will take no step further. It's like, okay, whatever that is, we need it inside of us as the body of Christ. So this is just a quote from Winston Churchill at the beginning of his memoirs of World War II. It is my purpose as one who lived and acted in these days, first to show how easily the tragedy of the Second World War could have been prevented, how the malice of the wicked was reinforced by the weakness of the virtuous. We shall see how the counsels of prudence and restraint may become the prime agents of mortal danger, how the middle course adopted from desires for safety and a quiet life may be found to lead directly to the bullseye of disaster. You see, we all could very easily fall into that quote, even though Winston Churchill always speaks a little above everyone's head. So I get it. I've read that quote so many times that I sort of understand it by now. But listen, that last little subsection is how the middle course adopted from desires for safety and a quiet life may be found to lead directly to the bullseye of disaster. What do we struggle with? When we see a world contorting and being misshapen, we oftentimes just want to live at peace. Come on, I don't really want to antagonize it. And that's exactly what it's saying to you. Don't antagonize me. I'll destroy you. 
And so we're like, oh, hey, no fight here, no fight here, and the enemy encroaches. And that is the way that evil supplants good, is that good men do nothing, or people with the truth, with the goodness of God, do nothing to express it when evil gives its voice. So here's our Greek word for the morning, Gregorio. Sort of a fun word. It's like if your name is Gregory or Greg, then you sort of understand what your name means, and it's a great name. But typically, this is going to be the word used to describe watchfulness, right? Because it means to watch, to give strict attention to one's position. You see, it's very, very important. One of the things that in discipleship, since this is, you know, for anyone listening to the podcast, this is the new arrival day for all our students. This is our first Sunday morning together. And so we're just about to embark upon five weeks together of discipleship. But one of the things I will constantly begin to ask as we progress in the discipleship is what is your position? And those that hang out in this environment know the answer to that biblically because your position is very, very significant. And the answer, I don't want to give away, this is sort of like spoiler alert, you could cover your ears if you want, but the answer, according to Paul, is you are in Christ. And so listen to that definition of Gregorio, to give strict attention to one's position. Do you know where you stand? And when the enemy starts hitting you, you need to know where you stand, because when you're in Christ, you're in his armor. And you know that you have a shield? And that shield of faith repels all the fiery darts of the evil one. If you don't know that in a day of battle, then you are susceptible to the cowardice position. It's like, oh, I just feel so vulnerable. Are you vulnerable? What's your position? Give strict attention to your position. To be cautious regarding your foe. It sounds at first blush that that means anxious. No, to be cautious about your foe, to recognize you do have a foe who is prowling about and seeking to devour. He's like wall testing you. In the ancient world, they used to have walls that surrounded cities, and that was how they were protected. Remember, they even had moats and you know the drawbridge and things like that. And so that's how they protected the city is the solid wall. And so what the enemy is, is he's a wall checker. He's constantly going around our life and looking for gaps. And if he finds one, he's going to play up that gap. You see, so you are supposed to have Gregorio. You are supposed to be cautious regarding your foe. He is seeking to devour you. You do not take that lightly. That's a part of your life as a believer. To stay awake is another definition, and alert, lest through passivity and slumber, calamity doesn't suddenly spring up and bring destruction. So there are so many illustrations, so many parables that go in this direction that encompass this idea. And so a good portion of the New Testament, in fact, is going to train us in this thing known as Gregorio, watchfulness of soul. And yet it's interesting how few of us are experts at this. In other words, it's not that we haven't had our moments of watchfulness, like, ha-ha, I see what the enemy is doing. However, we have far more moments of being asleep. We fall asleep very easily. You ever had that? I remember when I was driving with my dad, uh, and we were on a cross-country trip trying to drive through the night. You know, it's like, we're we're not going to pay the hotel bill. We're going to drive through the night. And my dad is like, okay, I need you to stay up with me. And sort of like Jesus saying to the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, watch with me. 
And so I was supposed to give him his like peanuts and things like that and hand him, because his eyes would, so he'd always say his eyes were salting. I don't know what that meant, but uh, he, he would like have tears coming out because he was like staring at the road constantly. So I would hand him a tissue and he would wipe his hand. So I had a job, right? And I had to stay alert. And when you're in that position, I tell you what, it is so easy to fall asleep. And have you ever had it where you're like, you're like, no, oh, no, and you're trying, and I, the next thing you know, I was just out cold. My dad's like, so how are you doing over there? I'm like, oh, I'm fine. I have this drool, you know, going down my cheek. That's the way we can be spiritually too. Jesus is like saying, okay, are you ready? I, I'm, I'm going to ask you for a tissue any moment now, some peanuts any moment now. And we're like, oh, yeah, and he says, watch, Gregorio. And we feel so pathetic in this thing. It is very easy to fall asleep. It is very hard to stay awake. And yet, in a sense, the New Testament saints stay awake. Uh, and so it's important for you to recognize, this is, a, this is a key truth. This could change your life if you get it. There's two ways of hearing the commands of Scripture. And I'm going to put it, one on the left side, okay? Every, well, this is my left, okay? You're right, technically, as the audience. But on my left, this is human effort. This is what Eric brings to the table. On this side, we're gonna call it God effort. The power of God to enable me to do something. Almost all of us, if you could say 100% of us when we're newly born into the kingdom of heaven, default, boom, to human effort. So when we hear a command, what do we do? We dig down in our own pockets. We're like, okay, what do I have? Because I need to stay awake. And boy, do I stink at staying awake. But oh, I'm going to grip my teeth. I'm going to hand the peanuts to him and give those tissues right when he needs them. And the next thing you know, we're asleep. Do you remember Peter? I will die with you tonight. And Jesus sort of shakes his head and says, by the time the cock crows, you will have denied me three times. You know how frustrating that would be to Peter? The same thing to us. Jesus is saying the same thing to us. I see your heart. I see the desire you have to serve me. It's good. It's a good desire. But before the cock crows, you will have denied me. What? What kind of encouragement is that for our Christian walk? What did Peter need? He needed something from above to invade his life. It's called Acts chapter 2. You see, Peter needed God to invade his life to bring him to boom this side of the ledger, this other hand, where he could be functioning by the right hand of God instead of his own strength and power, grit, and determination. So as I begin to stir you with words of scripture that actually challenge and expose the fact that you've fallen asleep multiple times, like, oh, there I go again. We get so frustrated with ourselves. The key is to turn to him, not just get more frustrated with your left-handed misery. Oh, I'm trying so hard, God. Yeah, I know, and I, would you allow me to do it? Huh, how does that work? It's a re-coordination of life. You see, you have a default, and you need to pause in your default. Say, okay, I'm not going to me. I'm going to him. Matthew 26, 41. Watch and pray. This is Jesus talking in the Garden of Gethsemane. Lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. This hand, this left, well, my left hand, it's on your right, but this is weak. And it is unable to do it. You have a desire, just like Peter did. I will die for you. He genuinely meant it. I don't doubt his desire that it was authentic, that it was real. 
However, like us, we have a desire to live for Jesus and to be fully his and to please him. We do. But this hand is not going to pull it off. The Carlsbad ants, I haven't talked about them for a a while. Uh, There is an enemy that is seeking to devour. So my family will have a fun time remembering this one. This is sort of, you know how sometimes you have memories in your life that you block out because they're rather painful? This one could fall into that category. Uh, So we were in an Airbnb in Carlsbad, California, and uh, we had, we put all our food in the, the pantry and we had it on the counter and you know we had a chopping block where we'd been cutting some fresh homemade bread and you know and then we'd slather it with butter stick some honey or jelly on you know some wonderful meals and uh, there were some other guests in that house uh, little did we know that uh, had very impressive sniffers and they were the Carlsbad ants and I tell you what we came home one day and Everywhere in the kitchen, it was just swarming with ants. Everywhere that we had food. So on that cutting board, it was just covered with ants. And then they were like trailing around a little you know, pathway to our pantry. And in our pantry, I mean, literally, this is not an exaggeration. My cereal, I had some special cereal. The kids can't touch my cereal. It's a special cereal. But I had like left the top a little open. They had invaded my cereal and were in my cereal. I've never seen anything like this. I mean, in Colorado, we get some ants every now and then, right? They'll just pool around on the floor, you know, stick a little trap out, they're gone. It's not that big of a deal. This is a big deal. And it was disgusting, okay? I don't know how many of you like to eat ant, uh, but I'm sure there's some, you know, foreign countries that are just like, it's a delicacy. I I haven't worked up the, the taste for that yet in my life. But it was interesting because we tried various things. We realized what we had to do was literally get Tupperware. We had to buy a ton of Tupperware and we had to stick every bit of food we had into bins that were sealed. And if they were not sealed, the enemy of our food in Carlsbad has the ability to get in and to devour that which should not be his. And it was a great spiritual lesson, though it was a rather disgusting vacation for our family, just to know, because it was interesting, once we sealed everything, the ants disappeared. They had no interest in our kitchen as long as everything was sealed. But if you leave anything off, which happened multiple times where the lid is like slightly off, they could smell it and they were in there. That's an incredible illustration, I know, disturbing, of our spiritual life. We have an enemy that is very proactive in devouring us. You think, why does he care so much about us? You ever had the thought that when you become a Christian, the enemy gives up on you? Uh, okay, let me, let me introduce you. Christianity 101. Every single one of us has challenges. We do. We live in a sin-riddled world. Like everyone that plants a garden has weeds. It's not like that's just a Christian thing. Why, why, God, why do I? Because I believe in you. No, every single one of us gets those weeds. But Christians, because of the nature of the spiritual battle we're in, we get bonus trials and challenges because there is an enemy who wants to destroy us. And he has limited resource. He does. Only one-third of the angelic host. That means it's not an infinite number of angelic, well, demons is what we call them. But he can't waste those. So he uses them in a strategic way to destroy those that are of the greatest challenge and threat. So that's why I say, you know, everyone gets trials, but Christians get bonus trials. And then you become a leader of said Christians, and you get bonus bonus. 
And so that, that's encouraging, isn't it? Some of you are like, I really was wanting to be a leader, but no more. No, you do. You want to be a leader. You want to be taking the resource of the enemy your direction because you have the capacity in Christ to defeat it. And so there's nothing better than to drag a whole bunch of demons after your life that gives the air for other people to breathe so that they can hear the truth of Jesus. It's all part of the strategy. So you, you want to get in on the game here. 1 Peter 5.8, be sober, be vigilant. Put your food in air-sealed Tupperware containers because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. There is a need for what Corey Tenboom calls a closed circle in your life. It's like the closed wall that I talk about in a city. If you have your gate wide open, it's no wonder that you have enemy in the midst of your camp. It's like, uh, did you not close the gate last night, uh, Harry, when you showed up? Oh, I didn't know I was supposed to close the gate. Ah, it's like the middle of winter. It's negative 10 degrees and you open a window. And you're wondering why you have a snowdrift uh, in your living room. Because there needs to be a closed circle. There's a reason why in the middle of the winter you close your windows and your doors because that which is outside will get in if you don't. The importance of alertness. So I could have called it vigilance, but that's a big word. It's a word that Eric Ludy likes, but I didn't know that if anyone was going to understand it. So I went with alertness. The importance of alertness. Now this goes back to my study of Mark 13 this week. And... This is sort of the end of Mark 13, and then I'm going to go back to an earlier part of Mark 13. It says, but of that day and hour no one knows, this is Jesus speaking, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed, watch, and pray, for you do not know when the time is. It is like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, in the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest, coming suddenly, he finds you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. Now, you, you could say, why did that stand out to you? And I could say, I'm not exactly sure, but I kept replaying it. In fact, I would rewind and go over this one little line, that very last line, over and over again. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. This is a very specific statement from Jesus. And in Mark 13, he's going to say, watch, 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 all the time. And so he's going to finish the whole thing. Watch. And we could say, it doesn't really matter that we watch. I mean, is it that big of a deal? Can't we just not watch? And then he shows up, we're sleeping, and he pats us on the head and goes, hey, it's all right. I, I know you fell asleep. I mean, you're human. That's just what happens to you. And it is. That would be an accurate statement. So why, why does he have to tell us this? And so there's something about this that I want us to allow the gravity of it to seek into our soul. That though our God is a very merciful God, he is. And he is forgiving. Praise God for that nature. However, he is also giving us the pattern for success. You want to be good at being a doorkeeper in his house? Then watch. Now, you could start by saying, but God, I, I'm very sleepy. I, I have a propensity towards being sleepy, 
and to falling asleep. He goes, I know. Thanks for bringing that up. Which is why I would like to train you how to watch by my power, not by yours. And if you're interested, I'm going to say that over these next five weeks, that's precisely what you're going to learn. You're going to learn how to be excellent in your spiritual life, not by gritting your teeth and saying, okay, God, I want to do this better, but by allowing God to move in and do it in and through you. So this is earlier in that same chapter of Mark 13. This is talking about the end and sort of what is going to happen. You know, everyone needs to hear on, the, uh, on this world about Jesus, and they need to, the gospel needs to be presented everywhere. And it says this. This is a very interesting scripture. But watch out for yourselves, for they will deliver you up to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues. You will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them. Now, what's funny is that is almost an amazing quote to stick on your refrigerator. It is. I mean, let's just take the latter half of that scripture, and I can just imagine that many of us, if it didn't have the first half, I, I imagine this probably would have been in every Sunday school class growing up. And that is, you will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake for a testimony to them. You're like, yeah. See, yeah, that's what God does in his people. Oh, I love it. Now, let's read the first part, and this is why it doesn't end up in our Sunday school classes. But watch out for yourselves, for they will deliver you up to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues. <laughs> How, could you imagine being one of the disciples and getting that? It's like, uh, excuse me, could, do we have a say in this? This is just the way it's going to be. Yeah, you're going to be delivered up to councils and beaten in the synagogues. You, can you understand why we strategically, almost surgically, lift this out and say, well, you know, we're, we're not the disciples, though? This is the heritage of those that bear witness of the name of Jesus. You are going to have trials and challenges. You don't need to fear those. See this big smile on my face? That's what you can have too. A big smile when you read a scripture like that. You see, there are two ways to approach every trial in your life. One is out of your own strength. Again, this is that one left hand. And you're gonna dig into your own pockets and what are you gonna find? A bit of resentment a bit of anger, a bit of frustration. There's also a lot of self-pity in there. A little depression, a little despair. Yeah, it's, that's in your pockets. You don't have a lot to bring to the table when it comes to difficulty. However, if you turn to the living God, what do you have? You have a sense of purpose. What does it say? You will be brought before rulers and kings, though you may be beaten in their presence, for my sake, for a testimony to them. This is our stage. Did you know that difficulty is the stage for the Christian? This is when we show that we have access to something the world doesn't. When we go through difficulty, we have something. Joy, peace, love. Throw us into a prison and you get the best of a Christian right there. The question is, are we ready for it? In other words, if I could say, difficulty is your stage, and then you dig in your own pockets. It's like, okay, God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and rejoice in my suffering. I'm going to try and have a good attitude because I know this is my stage. You're going to flop. And this is why you need to recognize this hand is futile. I can't do it. God's going to go out of his way to say it. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But what if you abide? What if you have him? What if you're not apart from him? What if you have access to the living God himself when you go through these trials? Then there is going to be a testimony of him to the earth. 
However, what is the key message that Jesus has in this? If you're going to be a testimony to the earth, if you're going to not go to your left hand, but go to your right hand, go to the, the solace, the strength, the power of Jesus in everything you go through, you need to learn to watch. This is critical to our souls. So three stay awake and watchful truths. One, a great victory can be gained only to be lost. What? Uh, it's proven throughout history. So when I'm teaching war, it's a very real lesson that you can gain a victory and then you sit uh, back and enjoy the spoils of your victory and let the enemy come back and rob it all. And that's actually a biblical framework too. Number two, though defeated, an enemy left unwatched is an enemy that can regain strength. Imagine if you lock up your enemy, this foul deceiver, in a, in a prison, and then through your behavior, walk a little close with your, you know, your keys jangling on your hip, and he sneaks them and unlocks himself and gets out. Your lack of watchfulness can create all sorts of disasters in your life. Number three, when Gregorio is absent, that watchfulness, the enemy will take back what he deems his lost territory. He does not like to give anything up. He is not happy with the fact that he has lost you. He is not happy with the fact that you booted him out of certain areas of your life that he once managed. And so if you stop watching, you'll find that the enemy will maneuver to take back what he deems his territory. Matthew 12, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. So shall it be with this wicked generation. Boy, again, not really the type of quote we want on our refrigerator. That's a very depressing quote, is the way we could say it. However, what's the lesson in it? Is that you can boot, boot something out, but if you're not watchful, and if you don't maintain it, if you don't set a garrison back there to protect it, then the enemy comes back in and actually will bring in greater strength against it, which is why we need to be watchful. So here's a quote, and I'm going to need to stick this in my quote that I start. I start my new Daily Thunder series uh, tomorrow morning, by the way, and it's called Spiritual Lessons from World War I. So if, if you miss Spiritual Lessons from World War II, you're going to be forced uh, through Spiritual Lessons from World War I. And if you don't like war, you'll still like this, don't worry. You don't have to be fond of war. I'm not fond of war. It's not like I wanna go off to war. I'm in a battle as a leader. Everything when you study war is actually very instructive to the soul. It's like, ha ha, oh, I know exactly what's going on now. It illuminates things. And so here's a great quote that I'll need to stick into my World War I series. This is Dr. J.H. Jewett. Don't you like that picture of this guy? Isn't he fascinating? Evil never surrenders its hold without a sore fight. We never pass into any spiritual inheritance through the delightful exercises of a picnic, but always through the grim contentions of the battlefield. It is so in the secret realm of the soul. Every faculty which wins its spiritual freedom does so at the price of blood. Apollyon, speaking of a character in Pilgrim's Progress, the big, huge, 
sort of demon character or Satan character. Apollyon is not put to flight by a courteous request. He straddles across the full breadth of the way, and our progress has to be registered in blood and tears. This we must remember, or we shall add to all the other burdens of life the gall of misinterpretation. We are not born again into soft and protected nurseries, but in the open country where we suck strength in the very terror of the tempest, we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. Now, for those of you who just arrive and you're like, wow, Eric, this is some heavy stuff to start with. Christianity is a battle. And when you try and act like it's not, that's when the enemy has the upper hand. When you know it is, and you know that the one you serve supplies greater strength to defeat the enemy every single time, you delight in the fact that it's a battle. Now, you guys have all had that one dream. Well, if you weren't in public school, you may, maybe didn't have this dream, because I, I don't know. But when, if you were in public school, you know the dream of showing up at school. Sometimes you're missing your clothes, too, uh, and can't get your locker combination. And there's a test, and you didn't know about it. I don't know if you've ever had that dream. Test, te- I have a test today. Well, no one told me. And then you go in. You, can't, you don't know anything for your test, and you just totally flounder. It's a terrible dream, right? None of us likes to be unprepared for a test, and that's why tests get a a bad rap. It's like, oh, tests, we hate tests. Actually, you only hate tests if you're unprepared. Have you ever had it where you're prepared for a test, and someone's like doing the flashcards for you, and you're just nailing it, and like, wow, you really know your stuff, and you like get that Barney Fife uh, type of look to you? (laughs) You feel good, and you want the test. Could you imagine translating that to your Christian life? Imagine if you weren't afraid of tests. Why? Because you know your position. Because you know the one in whom you live. And you know that tests are only going to make you stronger. It's only going to reveal something out of you. Could you imagine approaching your Christian life that way? Where you actually were not afraid, but actually anticipating, not wanting to bring unnecessary tests your way, but ready for the ones that God had assigned you. So the high up conversation, I have a picture of Franklin Roosevelt and Winston Churchill on the screen. And Franklin Delano Roosevelt, I, I would have loved to have been in some of these meetings, but there's a meeting, I don't know who else was in the meeting, but it was all these world leaders. And Franklin Delano Roosevelt, in the midst of World War I, is going to, I'm sorry, World War II, uh, is going to say, gentlemen, what should we name this war? Isn't it funny how pathetic their name was, World War II? That's like the great thing that they came to. But look at Winston Churchill. He answered this immediately. He said, the unnecessary war. That was his response. And I think that is a very telling statement. If you study World War II, there is one thing that is very clear. This war should not have happened. This is a result of absolute idiocy. And how many times in our life do we have an unnecessary war? Do we have battles? There is a necessary battle that we're in, but there's a whole bunch of unnecessary that we tug along with us because we lack Gregorio. So likewise, we are, likewise are many battles we ourselves fight. They are totally unnecessary battles that arise due to the neglect of watchfulness. So at the end of World War I, you see, I'm getting myself warmed up for uh, spiritual lessons from World War I. At the end of World War I, I know this is spoiler alert, but there is something called the Versailles Treaty. And the Versailles Treaty, for all practical purposes, if you're on the Allies' side, is very good. I mean, this is fantastic. It's going to totally destroy Germany. 
uh, in this. This is June 28th, 1919. And on paper, remember the name of this, Strong on Paper? On paper, there is simply no possible way Germany can become the strongest military power in the world over the span of the next 20 years. But alas, that is exactly what happened. You see, Everything about Germans' military is going to be deconstructed. They're going to have to go from 6 million men to 100,000. They are going to have to give up all of their battle fleets, all their submarines, all of these things, and they're going to be limited and hamstrung and be unable to do anything. And that's the goal of the Allies, is to make Germany uh, incapacitated when it comes to war. It's a great idea if you're France, Great Britain, America... We don't want Germany to once again flourish like they were, and they're going to wreak havoc on the world again. And 20 years later, we have something known as World War II, and there's a character you might recognize named Adolf Hitler. And one of the strongest militaries ever in history is going to arise out of a clear defeat. Germany can't do that. There's no way they could rebuild unless the good guys that had that position with authority don't implement their authority. And when Germany starts rebuilding, they do nothing. When Germany starts taking other countries, they do nothing. And they allow this behemoth to grow because they do nothing. That's not being watchful. So we have something that on paper is really impressive. It's called the victory of the cross. I even gave a date to it, even though I think all of us know that's probably not the exact date, is AD 33. We don't know exactly the year Jesus was born. We just sort of have a year that we picked. But, you know, since we all sort of understand that that could be at least a placeover, Passover day, AD 33. On paper, listen to this, guys. There is simply no possible way the devil should have any say in your life. He should be totally quashed. You're a new creature in Christ. He has no position, no say, no authority. But alas, we are dealing with skirmishes all the time. What is that? Why is it that on paper we can be so strong? Because we're believers, the church triumphant. We have the shed blood of Jesus. You guys know where Jesus is seated, don't you? He's at the right hand of the Father. All things are beneath his feet. Is there anything the enemy has on us? He is defeated at the cross. His head is crushed. We are redeemed and set free. We are no longer captives. We are not prisoners to sin. Fact. And yet, on paper, that needs to translate to in person. You see, it's still true. Just like that Versailles Treaty, when you study World War II, it's agonizing because they have all the authority to stop the forward progression of Germany. And that's why, uh, that's why uh, Winston Churchill is going to call it the unnecessary war. And he was the one pleading with the government, you must stop Hitler. You must stop Hitler. You must stop Hitler. And at that time, no one in England wanted to hear it. They called it warmongering. And everyone wanted peace, 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 peace. Everyone wants the quiet life. They don't want to have to deal with war and battle. And I get it. I do too. Every one of us in here, we don't want to deal with war and battle. We're in a war. And we need to recognize that our enemy is seeking to devour us. So we need to rise up in the position that we have and implement Gregorio. We need to be watchful over our souls 
And we need to not be the good men or good women that do nothing when evil encroaches, but to be the ones that implement the purchase of the cross. So how can we be watchers? So to be a watcher, there's four things. These are good, too. These are gems. You can't excuse the small things. Have you ever noticed that there's times in your life where you feel that conviction in your soul, but you're like, that is so pathetically small. Oh, how ridiculous is that? We had uh, this one time in Ellerslie where there was a, someone who got up to confess that they had taken, I don't know, it was like a fork, uh, from the, uh, the main area and taken it into their room. And that was something we had requested them not to do. <laughs> so I, I am chuckling at this because it was, it was actually a rather funny thing. But this person got up and they confessed that they took the fork to their room. And I had to have a serious face the whole time. It's like, oh, wow, okay. And so, like, would you forgive me? Eric's like, absolutely, I'll forgive you. But then that sponsored about 20 other confessions of taking forks and spoons and knives and plates. And so we actually ended up doing a bulk confession uh, after that. It's like, okay, guys, I know there's a whole bunch of you in here that are really feeling convicted. And guess what? I don't want them not to feel convicted, even though that was, I mean, it, it felt like really awkward. It's like, I hope you guys don't think that that's a big focus point for us here at Ellerslie is that we're just concerned about that. At the same time, for them, they had something they knew they ought to do, and they didn't do it. They violated their conscience. And when you violate your conscience, it's important that you make it right. Yet some of these things feel like forks, spoons, knives. And I get it. When I'm in those situations too, I do not like to have to, because you feel like you're stopping everyone's life to correct something that everyone's going to roll their eyes at. Are you serious? Very, very. I cannot go forward without telling you that I took that fork into my room. Here's what I want you to know. I am going to be a big fan of you allowing the Spirit of God to work in you in the small ways. Because if you start closing off the small ways, you oftentimes, then what is considered small starts to change and morph. And now something that used to be big to you is now in the small category, and pretty soon it's eliminated too. To heed the Spirit means to heed the Spirit. And when you receive conviction, that's the Spirit of God talking to you, which means that's not too small to him. Now, there is a voice that can easily accompany that called condemnation. And we'll be walking through that because there's a distinction between conviction and condemnation. Condemnation offers no hope. It's like, look at you. You've done it again. And condemnation always wants to shove you off a cliff. Conviction saves you from going off the cliff. It's like God's grace to say, hey, you know, this is not the direction for life. Turn, walk with me this way. It always offers hope. And that's an important thing for you to note, but you can't excuse the small things. Take them seriously in your soul. Number two, you need to have your first things monitor on and tuned in. Okay, now this is not something that's going to be easily understood unless I explain it. That's, this is just my term for it. First things. When my behavior starts to curdle, when my tone of voice begins to get harsh, when my impatience begins to to rise. You know, there's different things that are signals to me that something's off in the life of Eric. In other words, I would say impatience is not a first thing for me. It's a second thing. You know, if I don't deal with impatience, it can get even worse than that. You see, these are signals to our soul. So if you find yourself short-fused, well, what you want to do is go to first things. 
And you want to recognize that oftentimes it's because we've allowed something into our life. I can't tell you what that is, but it's sort of like you have a window open and it's negative 10 degrees outside. Have you ever felt a draft? It's like, well, I feel a draft. That's exactly what your soul wants to tell you as well. There's a draft. And so what you want to do is deal with first things. You could shovel the snow out uh, onto you know, your front walk and say, okay, God, I, I cleaned up my house. I got the snow out. And you could say, let's deal with first things, which is to close the door that led the snow in in the first place. You see, if you're just shoveling out snow and you're not dealing with what's bringing the snow in, you're not dealing with the first thing. So to allow God to get to root issues in our life, very, very important for watchfulness. Number three, you need to cultivate the humility of heaven. <sighs> humility of heaven is a deliberate choice because there's a humility of this earth and that usually still involves us trying to look good on the outside. The humility of heaven, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, doesn't seem to take into account the fact that I'm not going to look very cool when I acknowledge that or when I do that. And God's like, hmm, no, I, yeah, I, I, that's not my highest priority for you, is that you look cool to the world around you. In fact, when we obey the movement of grace and we agree with the humility of heaven, which is a gift of grace, where when you're in that moment and God's like, could you confess this? Oh, and the whole while your thought is, I'm going to look like an idiot. These people are going to think this and this and this of me. Okay, this isn't just you that has this go through your head. Every single one of us goes through the same paralyzing thing. But when you choose to go low and say, God, I do this for you, not for the applause of those around me. I'm in agreement with you. I tell you what, it sets you free. And it is how you caretake for your soul. When you cut off that humility of heaven, you actually begin to decompose. This is a gift of grace. Number four, you need to go back to that last point of clear direction and obey. So have you ever tried to skip over something that God asked you to do? Mm. Uh, yeah, we have a, a tendency to act like we don't hear it, uh, see it. I remember this one uh, statement that Reese Howells uh, said. He's a famous missionary from the past, but he said that he made a lot of noise in his days so that he, he, he wouldn't hear God's conviction on that point, lest God say something on that point. And it's like, wow, I, I recognize that. It's like you sort of sense God's near, and he's moving in to say, <clears throat> like you hear him clear his throat. You're like, hallelujah, hallelujah. You say all these spiritual things, quote scripture as loud as you can. Lest God speaks clearly to you what you know he wants to speak, but you don't want to hear. And that is, there's things in our life oftentimes that when we begin to get right with God and clear with God, he says, all right, let's go back to where we were. And sometimes we're just like, hey, God, couldn't we just move forward from here? You know, I don't really want to have to deal with that. Because sometimes that, there was a reason why we skipped over that. It might be making something right with your parents, acknowledging to your brothers and sisters your behavior. I mean, it can be hard things, in other words. And yet, that is the secret to Gregorio's to watch over these dimensions when the Spirit of God wants to build you strong. He wants to do this for you. He wants to fortify you so that you're not vulnerable to the enemy's game. But to do that, to have that strength from heaven, you need to agree with his way of doing it. And I can guarantee you up front, it's not always the easiest way. But wow, the freedom, the liberty, the strength that comes to our life when we walk in agreement with it. So strong on paper, 
strong in person. The truth of the victory of Jesus Christ must leap from the pages of the Bible, enter your heart, soul, and mind, and actually transform your life. I mean, you could sign a Versailles Treaty, and it's like, okay, Germany will never rebuild its military. The fact that you sign the treaty doesn't mean Germany will not rebuild its military. You have to be watchful over Germany. And the same thing is true in your soul. Jesus has shed his blood, and he has given you something far more powerful than the Versailles Treaty. And the enemy has no ability to encroach upon your life. None. He has no power, no authority, only what you give him. Just like I, if, if there was a terrible blizzard outside, we could say this blizzard has no authority over our inner climate here unless we choose to open a door. And to the degree that we yield to it, oh, it could have great influence over this environment. Could you imagine if it was negative 10 out and we had all the doors open for 24 hours? That outside atmosphere would rule in here. And that is why we need to be watchful. One of my favorite scriptures, and I'd say a favorite scripture at Ellerslie, 1 Thessalonians 5, 24, faithful is he that called you who also will do it. So the way that this is phrased, I'm just going to rephrase it. This is a paraphrase, right? And I'm going to even make that clear. It'll say paraphrase on the screen. But what this is basically saying is this. He is faithful to do it. So right now, you've just received a message. And it's a message about being watchful over your soul. Not allowing the enemy to encroach. The enemy may have already encroached. However, you can freshly awaken from a stupor and say, no, he has no right to be in here. It's just like shutting a window. It's just agreeing with the rules of the home. If you want to keep a home in that climate of the home, 70 degrees and pleasant, well then, when it's negative 10, you close that window, you close those doors. And the same is true for you. You just might need to slam some doors right now. Let's start agreeing with God. However, what you're being asked to do is bigger than you are able to accomplish in your own strength. And that's important for you to digest, even though it might take many repetitions for you to finally get it. It's funny, you could hear that you can't do it, oh, hundreds of times, and then one day on, a, on you know, the 272nd time that you hear it, you're like, huh, wait a minute. Oh, I, I get it, I get it, I can't do it. Like, yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. But there's, that's not where we stop. We don't stop with the fact that we can't do it. We continue to, but he can do it. In fact, he's faithful to do it, which is a pretty solid ground to stand on. You have not been called to do something that you are capable of in your own human effort of doing. You have been called to do something that he alone can accomplish, but he is faithful to do it. Father, I pray that you would work miracles in our lives. And that, Lord, where we need to start, you would begin. Lord, I ask that you, the power of your Holy Spirit would rule in our lives and in our inner man. And, Lord Jesus, where conviction is needed, it would be there. Where exhortation and encouragement is needed, where comfort is needed, we would have it. Lord, stabilize our souls and make us strong for the day in which we live. Arm us for the battle. 
so that we can win this for your glory. We love you. We pray these things in your holy, precious name. This message was brought to you by the team at Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Listen to our weekend message live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings, or join us for Daily Thunder Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. For more information, go to live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening.